Hello, and welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name's Melissa Yeo, and I'm one of the directors of the Society. On 8 May 2018, Matthew Bell presented a paper to the Society of Construction Law in London called How Is That Even Possible? Raising Construction Regulation from the Ashes of Grenfell Tower. The paper is notable because it was awarded the Society of Construction Law UK's prestigious Hudson Prize for 2017. The paper examines the visceral reaction of the community that such a fire could even happen to a tower block in London in 2017 and it discusses the concerted efforts which are being made to reform the regulatory system so as to make it fit for the purpose of keeping residents safe. We hope you enjoy Matthew's presentation. Be sure to subscribe to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast to be alerted when new episodes are available. We look forward to sharing further podcasts with you. I'm Melissa Yeo. Thanks for joining us. So the paper and my presentation to you tonight uh, is about the capacity of legal regulation to minimise residential building disputes. This is an issue I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, It's the subject of my PhD and I'm lucky to have this view uh, to prompt my thoughts uh, from my office at Northern Law School. So in recent years there's been a forest of high-rise apartment buildings springing up in front of me. The one with the gold safety screen in the middle of this photo will be 92 storeys tall and have about 1,100 apartments. And the eagle-eyed amongst you will immediately be able to spot potential consequences if there are defects in the millions of technical elements which go together to make up this forest of apartment buildings. These range from nickel sulphide occlusions in the glass to balustrade problems and of course the aluminium composite panel ACP cladding uh, which makes many of these buildings attractive to the eye and watertight yet susceptible to catastrophe if they are ignited. As these towers have risen our legislative regime in Victoria and I think it's fair to say here as well in England Uh, have remained largely based in the 1990s, a time when high-rise apartment buildings were rare and the mantra was to encourage private sector innovation via performance-based solutions. Now for a different view, which I had from a window of a plane uh, flying over London as dawn broke on the morning of 14th of June 2017. It was a, much like today, a beautiful sunny morning but my view of the metropolis was obscured by smoke from the fire which was then burning, still burning, uh, to several hours at Grenfell Tower in West London. So, this was the scene five miles from where we're meeting tonight, 47 weeks ago. It took several months to establish how many people lost their lives in the fire, with the number finally settled at 71. It's the highest fire-related death toll in London since the Blitz. The reaction to such a catastrophe happening in 21st century London was immediate and visceral. The question a firefighter asked on his way to the fire that night, how could this have happened, 
you might have seen that YouTube video, is one that people have been asking around the world ever since. So in this talk, I'd like to give a taste of the themes and details of that paper, and in doing so, I intend to canvas, although briefly, uh, the technical and policy factors which converged with such devastating effect at Grenfell, and what is being done in the UK and to a certain extent in Australia to address these causes. And I especially want to talk about the interim report from the Hackett Review, which came out just before Christmas. So at one level, the answer to the firefighters' question is simple. A fire which began in an apartment made its way into the polyethylene core of the ACPs which recently had been installed at Grenfell. And they also made their way into the polyisocyanurate insulation foam between the cladding and the building shell. The answer to the underlying question of how these materials came to be installed at Grenfell, and for that matter, uh, on thousands of buildings across the UK and around the world, is much more complicated. That question has been asked in many different ways, usually accompanied by the utterly understandable human desire to be able to blame someone for what happened. Who is the blame is currently the subject of detailed investigation, including in the Grenfell Tower inquiry uh, being led by Sir Martin Morbick. That inquiry will run its course. Regardless of its findings, however, we can be sure that the legal fallout from that fire will be ongoing and substantial. In the months following the disaster, we have learned that the cost to rectify cladding could run to tens of thousands of pounds for each apartment. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of pounds have been spent on having fire marshals patrol buildings. A case in Salford in January gave a clear steer that long lease holders should expect these charges to be passed on to them. Interestingly, however, uh, in mid-April, Barrett Developments took it upon itself to pay the cladding rectification bill, amounting to £2 million, at the cityscape apartments in Croydon. Whilst Barrett denied it was responsible for those costs, the Housing and now Home Secretary, Sajid Javid, commended the announcement and hoped it would encourage other developers to, as he said, do the right thing. Meanwhile, in Melbourne a few weeks ago, we had an insight into what at least the tip of the iceberg of rectification costs might be when a local law firm announced a class action against builders amounting to 4.2 billion Australian dollars. It's about 2.3 billion pounds. It was reported at the same time that a class action running to about a million pounds was being launched by leaseholders at the new Capital Key development in Greenwich against Galliard. When I looked at the burned out shell of the Grenfell Tower a few days after the fire, I was, like everyone, powerfully affected by what I saw. I tried to imagine the plight of residents, their community and the first responder emergency services on that dreadful night and the days which followed. My thoughts also turned to the builders designers, inspectors, and the dozens of others who were involved in the ill-fated refurbishment of the tower. I knew that they would be in the sights of people who entirely naturally would be seeking to ascribe blame. 
It occurred to me also, though, from my many years advising, teaching and learning from construction professionals, that it was highly unlikely that any of those people deliberately set out to cause this disaster. Rather, I thought anyone involved likely would be deeply distressed that their actions might have contributed to it. This set me to thinking whether responsibility for Grenfell ultimately lies with all of us who were just doing our jobs yet could have done something meaningful to prevent it. I very much include myself in this responsibility as a practitioner. I've done my job in protecting clients' interests through shifting risk and shielding them from liability and as an academic, I've indulged my intellectual curiosity by trying to resolve jurisprudential, contractual and legislative conundrums. These are all things which we are expected to do in our respective roles, but have we taken our eye off the ball when it comes to that most fundamental of concerns, dwelling safety? In fairness, we probably, all of us, have in the back of our minds that we're continuing to operate in a regulatory environment over which looms an omniscient state, which is responsible for protecting its citizens, that is, we assume that Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan, the 17th century vision of a strong and well-resourced state, remains in place. That assumption helps, I think, to explain the sense of shock that Grenfell could have occurred in London in 2017. However, contemporary critiques have been pointing to how that state-based control has been eroded and diluted in the name of deregulation and fostering market-led innovation. After Grenfell, these critiques have turned their focus to the standards which are to apply to building workmanship and materials and how in recent decades they have largely become the subject of performance-based solutions, often proposed, signed off and supervised by the private sector. By the end of 2017, as the survivors of Grenfell continued picking up the pieces of their shattered lives, the machinery of state investigation had begun to work. Whilst the Morbeck inquiry received the lion's share of media attention, another inquiry, that led by engineer and former health and safety executive chair, Dame Judith Hackett, came into the spotlight with the publication of its interim report just before Christmas. That report is, to my mind, a remarkable achievement, which gives real cause for optimism <coughs> that some good might yet come from Grenfell by way of a rethinking of how we regulate residential construction. Let's look at some key passages from its introduction. From these, we can glean a number of points which inform the detail of the review's so-called direction of travel. First, it has a clear regulatory goal of safety for residents throughout the life cycle of the dwelling. Second, that an ain't-broke, don't-fix-it approach, or one that sticks polyfiller over gaps, will no longer suffice. Rather, wholesale and holistic reform is called for. The regulatory goal of safe and habitable buildings arguably reflects community expectations. As the Queen remarked in Her Majesty's 2017 Christmas Address, we expect our homes to be a place of safety, sanctuary even. However, 
a moment's thought is sufficient to realise just how radical an ambition that goal entails for construction law regulation. It has a prevailing focus on regulating rights and liabilities between parties, usually in England and other common law jurisdictions, via contractual relationships <coughs> such as construction contracts and leases. The absence of contractual privity would, for example, ordinarily lead to an assumption that no duty of care is owed by designers and builders who allow flammable cladding to be installed to non-owner residents and visitors of apartment buildings, protecting those residents and visitors from rectification costs. No duty of care, I think, would be the assumption. The situation is different in Canada and New Zealand, and of course this proposed class action in relation to New Capital Key will no doubt test whether the Defective Premises Act gives leaseholders quasi-contractual rights against Galliard or others. All of that is for a different day, however. To my mind, though, the maelstrom of the current legal position is exactly why it's such a good thing that the review is being led by an engineer rather than a lawyer like me. Dame Judith and her colleagues are able to do precisely the thing which is required, to look afresh at and rebuild the regulatory regime. And this approach is supported, in, uh, it's supported by regulatory theory. Whilst that's a complex and fascinating field of itself, it suffice to say at this stage that most regulatory theorists emphasise the need, firstly, to identify clearly the specific policy goal, which as we've seen the review has done, and then to identify the mix of tools which should be deployed in order to achieve it. And broadly speaking, the Hackett Review has proposed uh, its tools by reference to six core themes. I won't dwell on these but I do commend them to your detailed review. I think, I think you'll agree that it's hard to argue with them in the abstract. That said, there has quite rightly been engagement with the detail of what they mean in practice, including uh, a couple of weeks ago the Royal Institution of British, Ar British Architects expressed concerns that the interim report indicates an unwillingness to, for example, intervene to ban aluminium composite panels and mandate sprinkler systems. It will be noted that these themes are very much aimed at prevention of defects rather than the usual legal focus of providing remedies for their cure. Though, of course, clarity about the roles, responsibilities and standards ought to make uh, establishment of liability more straightforward. So my paper and the longer version, which is to be published in the International Construction Law Review, also gives a sense of the response to these cladding issues arising from Australian reviews. These were initiated in the wake of the thankfully non-fatal Lacrosse building fire in Melbourne in 2014. Their deliberations and reforms were given increased urgency after Grenfell, and several of them have already come through. Three of these reforms and potential reforms are on the screen now, as you'll see a full ban of flammable aluminium composite panels has not been palatable in Australia. The state of Queensland has implemented a chain of responsibility regime, which ascribes liability throughout the supply chain, including to building owners. 
and gap-filling duties of care by way of statute are also being contemplated in Australia. These measures provide examples, I think, which are consistent with the overall thrust of the Hackett Review to ensure responsibility is shared across all participants. In closing tonight, I'd like briefly to explore how ambitious and potentially challenging that principle is if it's taken to its logical conclusion in relation to responsibility being more stringently affixed to building occupants. This is an apartment building near one of Melbourne's famous shopping strips. As you'll see, it's an architecturally striking example of the aesthetic and functional qualities of aluminium composite panels. I'm informed also that the building incorporates advanced fire suppression features. The image does, however, demonstrate what a challenge it is to ensure achievement of Dame Judith's policy goal that buildings be, in her words, safe and remain so. This challenge is especially acute given the broader human context in which a building like this operates during its life cycle. <coughs> if you look closely, you might see that there's a burger restaurant on the ground floor and that some residents have barbecues on their balconies. Do these sorts of potentially dangerous activities need to be regulated in a highly interventionist way? At what point should we as a community be intervening in what people do within their own homes in order to keep their res those residents and their neighbours safe? Taking away people's right to have a barbecue is certainly right up there with other things which are held to be un-Australian. It is approaching the level of regulatory intervention which we experience when we fly. Yet, it is exactly that high level of regulation which made it possible for me to travel safely to be with you this evening. And which in 2017 meant that according to the Aviation Safety Network, around the same number of people died in all civil aviation accidents across the world as perished during that one dreadful night at Grenfell. No one should die in buildings or in commercial aircraft. We do need to ask, though, whether as a community we are willing to take safety in the construction <coughs> and maintenance of our homes as seriously as we do the safety in the planes that cross our skies. This is one of the many questions for us in getting the regulatory settings right in the wake of Grenfell. It is but one illustration of the reality that building safety is part of a dynamic mix of considerations at play in residential construction, including making sure that our homes are aesthetically pleasing, affordable, sustainable, both environmentally and for the economic viability of one of our most important industries, and remain our private haven, the place of sanctuary, as referred to by Her Majesty. On the 5th of September 1666, Samuel Pepys climbed the steeple of All Hallows Church and looked out at a London devastated by the Great Fire. He wrote in his famous diary that it was the saddest sight of desolation that he ever saw. 350 years later, in the shadow of Grenfell, we are left with the firefighters' question. 
how could this have happened? And perhaps the more important question, how can we prevent this from happening again? I come to you tonight without simple answers to those questions. What I am confident of, however, based on my research and experience in relation to construction law regulation, is that we are now starting to ask the right questions and that these can lead to meaningful reforms if there is sufficient community and political will. In particular, the way in which the Hackett Review has set up its direction of travel and then has proceeded to gather together industry stakeholders reflects the holistic approach advocated by regulatory theorists and those who, like Dame Judith herself, have achieved significant reforms in kindred areas like health and safety. As we saw a generation ago, with the Constructing the Team review led by the late Sir Michael Latham, <coughs> substantial reform is possible in our industry when the right questions are asked and then answered collaboratively by our industry and its lawyers. With this in mind, I'm grateful not only to the Society for allowing me the opportunity to speak with you tonight, but for the many people I know in this room who've engaged via submissions, advice to the inquiries, and social media discussion, and many other ways, uh, the way that we've engaged with these important issues. Your work will allow us, all of us, to rest easier in our beds. Thank you.